Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. The following interview with Tony Horowitz was recorded on May 17, 2019, in the KPFA studios in Berkeley. Ten days later, on May 27th, Tony Horwitz died of an apparent heart attack while on his book tour in Washington, D.C. He was 60 years old. My guest is Tony Horwitz, whose latest book is Spying on the South, an Odyssey Across the American Divide. Tony Horwitz has written six books, including Confederates in the Attic and Midnight Rising, which I've interviewed you about. There's also Blue Latitudes, A Voyage Long and Strange. This book, Spying on the South, you follow the path of the second southern voyage of Frederick Law Olmsted, who wound up creating Central Park and lots of other parks. This is about voyages to follow Olmsted's path. It began 2014, and there were some in 2015 and 2016, culminating around the time of the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, the southern part of my travel ended at the Rio Grande in Texas on the on the Mexican border just a couple of days before Trump's election. And then I did some additional travel research in the fall of 2008 just to sort of refresh uh, some of my material. This book began with Olmsted. So let's go back and talk about how you came to find the book, which is sort of in the book, In Spying for the South, But more importantly, what was that little spark that said, hey, I'm going to do this? You know, book ideas come from all sorts of places. Uh, And this one, uh, frankly, came from cleaning house. (laughs) Under orders from my wife, I was going through uh, all the books I had from college that had been toting around the world for 30 years because I couldn't let go of them. I was going to revisit them. So I finally went through them and uh, throwing away my liberal arts education, and I stumbled on The Cotton Kingdom, Frederick Law Olmsted's book about his southern travels. And I became enraptured as I read it and also came to this notion of a parallel journey to his uh, in the 1850s at another moment of of national division. So that, I think, seeing him first as a vehicle for a a contemporary journey was the original attraction. Were you looking for a book? source for a... No. Uh, book ideas never, you know, uh, somehow it never happens, or at least for me, never happens that way. It's always something that just kind of floats through the window or catches your eye when you're looking for something else or writing about something else. At the time, were you working on another book? No, not actively. I, I think I was doing a sort of a long-form journalism and certainly open, always open to a, a fresh book idea. 
And this one really just happened quite accidentally. So you charted out what you were going to do, and you began researching and finding out exactly what he said, right? I certainly did the latter. I did a lot of research on Olmsted and, and his travels in the South as an undercover correspondent for the New York Times. What I didn't do, though, was have any itinerary apart from following his geographic route and doing so in the same spirit. He writes at one point that the best kind of travel is when you put yourself in the way of accident, you know, meaning that you have no idea what's coming next. So I didn't have uh, any plan beyond I'm starting at point A and I'm following him all the way to the Rio Grande. And you began West Virginia. Yeah, technically in Maryland, as he did on a train. And then through West Virginia, Appalachia is really the opening part of the journey. I noticed in your interviews in 2014 that you could kind of smell Trump in the wind, though this was a year and a half or so or two years before he actually decided to run for president. Were you kind of surprised at the way people were responding politically? Yeah, his name wasn't really even kind of in the ether at that point. But I certainly picked up, uh, I would say, particularly in places like Wheeling, which is a, a kind of textbook Rust Belt town on the Ohio, uh, kind of hollowed out, deindustrialized, uh, meeting lifelong Democrats who were talking about their failing allegiance to the party, just this feeling that they'd been left behind and that nothing was changing for them, that there was always a lot of talk. So I think that discontent, sure, has been building for a long time before you know Trump came on the scene and uh, capitalized on it. Well, the first part of your trip includes a very strange barge trip, which doesn't really go very far, but does go very slowly. At that point, were you beginning to go, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) I would say that happened at a a number of points uh, in my journey. I trying to travel sort of freestyle, often not even knowing where I was going to spend the next night. But sometimes that lands you in unexpected and uncomfortable circumstances. So because I couldn't ride a steamboat like Olmsted did on the Ohio, I hitched a ride on a a, a boat that pushes coal barges, delivering coal to coal-fired stations along this probably the most industrialized river in America. You know, it's just one of the dirtiest jobs I've ever uh, seen and, and very demanding. So, yes, by about the third or fourth day in this very cramped boat, you know, with coal dust. And, you know, it was like, yeah, get me the heck off this thing. But, um, you know, I I stuck it out a bit longer and I hope it makes for a good chapter of the book. (laughs) When you were doing that, and this is more, I think, in this part of the trip than the rest of the trip, the physical remains of what Olmsted saw pretty much aren't there anymore. There's very little. I mean, what you saw was not very pretty. Not pretty for the most part. I mean, yes, parts of West Virginia that I went through are, you know, lovely mountain scenery. But that area that he traveled through along the Ohio, yes, became subsequently very industrialized. So I got glimpses of, you know, the river landscape that he found quite beautiful. And there were there were spots where I could see in his vivid writing about the landscape, I could see what he was seeing. But I would say, yeah, that was maybe one of the more challenging places to do so. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about each of these parts of the sure. journey. Two questions. First is for that first part, what surprised you the most and what fulfilled whatever expectations you had? Well, as, as I said, I tried really not to have 
strong expectations. To travel as he did and see it freshly, and that's harder to do in our era, obviously, but to not overstudy before I went or to be going online all the time to, you know, read up about wherever I was found myself. I think what I found that was a kind of painful in West Virginia is this uh, obsession with coal that we all know about. Uh, and at the time I was there, you know, signs in every other yard, you know, decrying uh, Washington's war on coal. And the reality is that coal now accounts for about 2% of employment in West Virginia. Uh, the industry has been dying for a number of reasons for decades, yet people still cling to it. It has such symbolic power. And Trump clearly exploited that, and so do politicians in West Virginia. But the disjuncture between the politics and the reality, and as one person said to me, having a war on coal, it's like having a war on midgets because there, there's really nothing left to have a, a war on, yet anyone who talks about uh, moving on from this very dirty coal you know, will just be sort of hounded out of the state. Well, Tony Horwitz and spying on the South, this is pretty much mentioned only in that first part of the trip. You may have mentioned it mm -hmm. elsewhere, but I, I remember distinctly opioids and the opioid mm -hmm. crisis. Was that a shock to you when you heard mm -hmm. about that? Because this was before we all heard about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I was, I think, traveling just as that problem was emerging, beginning to emerge in national consciousness. And at the time, you heard more about meth, which has also been a long time problem, in, in particularly in, in rural areas and often in the South. So I, I heard more about meth at the start, but as I traveled, because I was traveling mostly in, in rural and small town areas, you know, opioids emerging as a, more often as a topic of discussion. So it was kind of a background noise, but I, I wouldn't say I was aware to the degree that, you know, we all are now of just how deep this crisis is. Well, when you were going back and writing the book, mm -hmm. particularly that first section, mm -hmm. and you're writing it three years later, let's mm -hmm. say, when you're doing that and editing it, mm -hmm. were there certain things in your notes that you suddenly said, holy cow? <laughs> yeah, I didn't wait three years. I actually try and write while I'm researching and reporting. It helps me clarify what I've got, what I, where I need to go back and get more. And uh, so it certainly wouldn't have been uh, uh, three years later, maybe a, a few months later. But sure, there are always times whenever there's a lag like that, that you, uh, you realize you maybe glimpsed something that you didn't uh, understand the magnitude of. But, you know, the other reality, of course, is that you throw away 90 percent of your notes. You know, right. I feel that's the most important thing you do as a writer is you, you, you vacuum up everything you can while you're on the road. And then you have to be the opposite at your desk. You have to be absolutely ruthless. And anything that uh, doesn't move the, the narrative forward just has to go. So you do that trip and then at a certain point you stop and you stop for a year. Yeah, there are a couple of breaks. I did not, as Olmsted did, go out for this, you know, continuous journey. I, I have a family. <laughs> I have a life. So I would uh, periodically go home. So it was um, – I didn't take a break of anything like that. But yes, it was, um, I would say, on and off travel for over two years. Then you get back on and now we're at the Mississippi and you find this steamboat that takes you down – this tourist steamboat, yeah. which is yet another bizarre <laughs> moment. It sounded serendipitous when you found out about it. 
That one was less difficult to arrange. So, yeah, I got off the coal barge and then make my way overland, as Olmsted did, through Kentucky and Tennessee. And then he got on a very nice steamboat. And in this instance, I was able to really replicate his journey quite closely because there are these uh, replica tourist steamboats, 19th century design, going the exact path he did, even taking the same amount of time that his boat did, and stopping at many of the ports that he wrote about. So that was kind of interesting in itself. I really could say, okay, now I'm really traveling like Olmsted, except that I'm in this bizarre kind of floating retirement home, to be honest. I was about the only person there, uh, not yet on, on Medicare. And you're floating past these once huge, cruel slave plantations while being entertained by Mark Twain and Elvis impersonators. So yes, it was a, a quite bizarre scene. It also op- must have opened your eyes a little bit to what was happening in these slave plantations. I went to a slave plantation, a couple of them in Louisiana, And they kind of, not the coin of phrase, whitewash what Mm -hmm. was actually going on. But your descriptions are really Mm -hmm. horrific. Well, I I saw a tremendous change, actually, in the 20 years since I wrote Confederates in the Attic. When I visited plantations, and it was in a different part of the South, in that era— Slavery was almost the S word. It wasn't spoken. You know, they would talk in in a shadowy way about, you know, servants and then go back to uh, uh, telling you about the furnishings in the big house. And that has really changed. Not at all of them. Some of them still have the whole hoop skirted, gone with the wind presentation. But many others, they've really put slavery front and center in the interpretation, often quite graphically. So I think that's a a positive change that I saw quite dramatically, not only at plantations, museums, battlefields, other sites that uh, slavery is much more uh, a part of the story than it once was. There's one plantation you went to where they didn't even take you into the big house. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, there was one called Frogmore, which is near Natchez, Mississippi, but it's actually on the Louisiana side of the river. That was the first one I came to where, yeah, the presentation was really about slavery. And it was only after I'd left. We went in the church where slaves prayed. We went in the slave cabins. We went in the the gin where they ginned cotton. And uh, then the tour was over. And it was only afterwards I thought, gee, yeah, we didn't see any furnishings. Even more striking was one called Whitney Plantation in Louisiana that's essentially become a a slave holocaust memorial. It's really all about the cruelty of slavery. And so, you know, it's a a really changing landscape in that regard. Were the people on the boat all white? Almost all white, which was also uh, kind of bizarre given that so much of the history we were learning about on route was um, about African-Americans and that the uh, sort of worker bees on the boat were largely black. And the music was all kind of uh, jazz and blues and soul, mostly white performers. So, yeah, there, it, was a, it was a kind of odd. And I don't think it was conscious on their part in that weirdness on the part of the company. I think it's the way they market these particular voyages that it appeals mostly to elderly whites. You hung out with a couple of people on there, but they seemed atypical of most of the people on the boat. Did you get a chance to talk to some of these old timers about their feelings about what they saw? Sure. A lot of uh, people were from overseas. You had a real mix. I think the couple you're referring to were were from California. And they were interesting, I think, because I think 
folks out on the West Coast, if they haven't been to the South, or maybe um, weren't uh, marinated in this history in the way that, for instance, I was growing up near the Civil War battlefields in Virginia and, you know, having lived and worked in the South. So it was a real range of reactions. I think one common one was people being struck by the size and systemization of these huge plantations. We have this, uh, or many Americans have this sort of image that they were kind of feudal and backwards and uh, old-timey, you know, like gone with the wind, when in fact they were gulags. I mean, some of these had a thousand slaves working in shifts, you know, steam-powered gins. These were major capitalistic operations. I was told, and I couldn't find the article, that you wrote an article about going back to some of the same people from Confederates in the attic. It was in the wake of Charlottesville and other incidents around Confederate memory. And so I heard from a few of the people I had interviewed in that book 20 years ago, and I thought, okay, I'll revisit what do they feel now 20 years later on, on all sides. You know, and When was this? Uh, this was, uh, I guess, fall of 2017. And it was interesting because some of them had really changed their positions. I really think there has been a lot of change despite what we see in horrible moments like Charlottesville. White supremacy may be on the march at the extremes, but I think there's a a deeper tide in the South, at least, that is moving the other way. And just one example, a woman I had interviewed for Confederate Sniatic who was a Scarlett O'Hara reenactor. She was the impersonation of the Old South. This was her livelihood. She went around in this hoop skirt, you know, talking about Mammy. And, and she just had gradually come to realize that this was all a lie, this story she was telling, and that she had essentially been sold a bill of goods, and that the way people were treating her, they were glorifying this Uh, antebellum South. So, you know, I got an interesting range of opinions. The friend of mine who read the article also said that you found that there were some people who accepted you warmly, this northern Jew, Mm -hmm. and now did not because Mm -hmm. it was the Trump era. Mm -hmm. There was one in particular, and this was the beginning point for the story. I had written something else. I've forgotten for what publication on this and indicated my own feelings about, you know, uh, uh, that the rebel flag should come down, etc. And I heard out of the blue from one of them, uh, emailed me, and called me, yeah, whatever, you stinking Jew or something, uh, uh, not surprised by what you wrote or something. And I realized who it was. It was this extremist I had met at a rebel flag rally in South Carolina uh, who had invited me to his mobile home. And we'd had this very frank conversation. So we continued this conversation and I wrote it into the piece. He has really retreated into this online world where, you know, his own little silo, and we all know this is the danger of technology, is that it's enabled these once isolated extremists to essentially find each other. And he's now in this just sort of silo of hears and reads nothing except or almost nothing except uh, on these neo-Nazi and, you know, other extremist sites. What I saw in... um reading Spying on the South, as you went in, you went to a number of bars and talked to a lot of people. There was a little of that, but not a whole lot. It didn't sound like the internet had taken over, at least the people you spoke with, Mm -hmm. anywhere. Well, again, I'm finding most of these people in public spaces or in their workplaces. I did visit a lot of sorts of people at homes and churches everywhere. I go, you know, anywhere. 
So by its nature, if you meet someone in the bar, they're not at home, you know, trolling the internet. They're people who want to be around other people. But no, I think it's fair to say uh, the technology has, you know, profoundly changed almost every American's life. And you saw that in talking to them? Yeah, certainly in our political views and, again, the polarization of the country. And part of what I felt is in the value of simply meeting people in bars, et cetera, is for them to see that, yes, you know what? I'm a liberal Jew from Massachusetts and I don't have horns, you know, and we can sit here on adjoining bar stools and talk in a civil way and a frank way about how we feel on this issue and that issue, usually in opposite camps. You know, uh, there's something about social media that we become angrier and uglier than we are in person as Americans. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't really have a conversation with a Trumpist online. It's very difficult. And they would feel the same about a conversation with someone they disagreed with. So I think we've kind of lost a little bit of that, yeah, sort of basic American decency and openness. And we all need to work a little harder to get outside of our precincts. And that doesn't mean you don't have to go south to do that. I'm sure if you drove an hour out of San Francisco, you would be in a a very different environment than here in Berkeley. So there is still some point in interaction, but it's not online (laughs) interaction. And I'm not Pollyannish about this. I don't think this necessarily resolves our problems. But I think if nothing else, maybe it lowers the temperature a little bit and makes it a little harder for us to stereotype and demonize each other. Tony Horwitz, you go into Louisiana and the bayou and mud trucks. (laughs) Mud fest, yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I have to say, I think Louisiana is one of my two or three favorite states in the union just because it's just so bizarre. Uh, It's just so different from everywhere else, beginning with the the language. Uh, You know, in the bayou, in the Cajun parts of Louisiana, you can walk into bars and and if you're not from there, you will not understand anything they're saying. They have such a distinctive patois. The the diet is completely different. And they're also just kind of wild and crazy. Uh, They love to have a good time in Louisiana. And so one example of that was this uh, mud fest at the site of a uh, a slave plantation that Olmsted had visited and described as the largest and cruelest of any uh, he had visited. So it was it was a bit grotesque. It's now the site of this bacchanal where uh, people in these monster trucks they built themselves, loaded with moonshine, have this sort of demolition derby and public stripping and just this crazy. Yes, mud fest. And I, yep, joined in and found myself in those trucks drinking and drinking out of a jar. And um, it was, um, yeah, I felt a little bit like I'd been kidnapped by friendly aliens. The trucks go slowly because yes. it's mud. Yeah. You brought a friend, Andrew, from Australia. And this is sort of analogous to Olmsted bringing his mm-hmm. brother, John. Mm-hmm. And that was, I guess, sort of the purpose because he brought somebody? Sort of as a joke. Yeah. So Olmsted, he travels the South twice. And on his second journey, his younger brother has tuberculosis and thinks that the air of the South will you know, improve his lungs. So I uh, jokingly suggested my own brother that he come. And he said, I have a life. But then a, an Australian friend of mine, uh, my wife's Australian, when I told him about this journey I was about to embark on, said, you know, I'd love to come along for part of that and see your American outback. He rendezvoused with me when I was sort of midway <laughs> in New Orleans. And when we traveled together through Louisiana and part of Texas. In that part of the world, what surprised you the most? 
oh, pretty much uh, everything in Louisiana comes as a surprise. They have drive-through daiquiri shops. You know, the drinking is just ubiquitous. You know, I felt my, my liver function had uh, had fallen dramatically after a week in New Orleans and then another uh, long stretch traveling across uh, Louisiana. I would say the diversity, just the, the strangeness, that there are still these parts of America that have escaped, you know, the kind of sameness that we so often see. Sometimes it's physical, the kind of franchise sameness of our of our cities, it, it looks different and it feels different. And uh, I think that's, you know, what's most wonderful about Louisiana. What I noticed is not just in Louisiana, but the various parts of Texas as well, that we tend to forget about regional foods, but regionalism in food is really alive and well. Oh, yeah. Also, regionalism within states, if that makes any sense. I mean, Texans know this, but I think people who haven't been there from outside the state, you know, maybe tend to think of it as a bit of a monolith and, you know, the 10-gallon hats and the oil rigs. You know, Texas is really sort of five states stitched together. It's, you know, very different depending where you are. And yes, even the the food is different. And yes, so in Texas, the most distinct thing is that barbecue is made from brisket rather than pork as it is elsewhere in the South. This is one um, Southern fetish that as much time as I've spent there, I don't completely understand. And I don't know whether it's because I'm Jewish. I'm not kosher, but maybe I have some lingering issue with pork, but the obsession with barbecue. And yes, and the differences within the South. I mean, if you sit down a a North Carolinian and a Tennessean, and they'll start arguing about, you know, the different ways they cook their barbecue. And to me, it's it's all pretty good, but it's just not that exciting. There's also a German flavor in a part of Texas toward the end of your trip. Mm -hmm. It's like entering this strange country. (laughs) Yeah. I spent a lot of time on that story because Olmsted did. He discovers towards the end of his journey that there's this very large population of Germans who have settled in the middle of Texas at that time. And he, he hopes that they can become a sort of fifth column behind Southern lines and becomes very involved with the Germans there. So I spent a lot of time in that area. It's basically in the hill country of pretty part of Texas between uh, Austin and San Antonio. But it's no longer a a sort of progressive in the way that it was in his day. They're Texans now. They love their guns. They're they're very politically conservative. But there's still this sort of kitschy German-ness to, yes, the diet, and they have Wurstfests. And, you know, some of the old timers, some real German-ness still comes through in the way they speak and the way they talk about their childhoods and the values that were different. But I would say it's a waning subculture within the South. What year was the Olmsted trips again? 1852 to 1854. We're talking about less than a decade from the Civil War. Yes. And by the end of that period, things are really heating up. Uh, Bleeding Kansas, uh, the creation of the Republican Party. I would say by 1854, you know, we're really on on the path to war. He he does this really against the backdrop of rising national tension. And also the changing view of his perspective on slavery. You mentioned at the beginning of the book that he was, yeah, abolitionist, but, and by the end of the book, Spying on the South, when you're talking about his life afterward, he is a staunch abolitionist. Yeah. What's interesting is his 
arc of his uh, view of, on slavery uh, is very close to Abraham Lincoln's and many other uh, Northerners who hated slavery but were not abolitionists. Abolitionists were a small minority who at that time you know, wanted the immediate and absolute end to slavery and full citizenship for freed slaves. People like Olmsted and, and Lincoln at that time thought that was neither practicable or constitutional, and that they instead looked to uh, containing slavery and not allowing it to expand, and they imagined gradual emancipation. So that's the view that Olmsted sets off with. But his time in the South, he realizes this is really the dangerous class, as he calls them, the large slaveholders that are leading us to conflict and war. And so his views gradually harden. And then by the Civil War, yes, then he's really burned the whole house down. He's, he's a you know, staunch end slavery completely now and destroy the whole society built on it. In your travels, what was the makeup of the people you spoke with? You know, it depended where I was. West Virginia is overwhelmingly white. The rural areas of Kentucky I traveled, I would say, was uh, mostly the same. Uh, by the time I'm in Tennessee, you're, you're a little deeper into the South. I would say from there on, particularly in Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, you know, I didn't count, but, you know, probably half the people I'm talking to are African-American. And then it's it's also gotten you know, much more diverse in all the South, tremendous immigration from elsewhere. And then, you know, Texas is just a complete mishmash. I mean, Houston is now the most uh, ethnically diverse uh, city in the country. Texas, you meet every <laughs> range and mix of people. And then I ended the border where even on the Texas side, 95% of the residents are Spanish speakers and, and of, you know, Latin heritage. No, oh, there's one town, Eagles Pass, where you Eagle couldn't Pass. find anyone who spoke English. <laughs> yeah, when I first arrived there. And, you know, I, I guess I should have known this. But again, I tried not to over-research in advance. I knew I was sort of going to this sort of Tex-Mex area. And I have kind of rudimentary Spanish. And I arrive in this, this hot, crowded town. And I'm just looking for someone to talk to and wandering around with my feeble Spanish. And I and just couldn't. Most of the people there were actually had come across from Mexico to shop or, or to go to school. Or, you know, it's what's interesting about seeing the border is that that it's very fluid. It's not the way you know some people imagine. You have this huge security apparatus, uh, but in a sense, Eagle Pass is part of the town on the Mexican side, Piedras Negras, with this you know narrow river in between. But they're really, in a sense, one community. I noticed that you didn't go into the Deep South, Alabama, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Paul Theroux did in mm -hmm. his book, which I don't know. Did mm -hmm. you read his book? I read some of it. I know the book you're referring to. <laughs> but he noticed abject poverty, mm -hmm. poverty that reminded him of Africa. Mm -hmm. Did you see any of that? Absolutely. And I'll just explain. I, I mean, I did go to Mississippi. I didn't do um, Alabama, Georgia, and the Carolinas, partly because Olmsted didn't go there on this voyage, but also because that's the territory I was uh, spending more time on for Confederates in the attic. I, I wanted to see places that were less familiar to me. Absolutely. The poverty you see, I went to a town called Donaldsonville, uh, Louisiana, uh, it's a kind of petrochemical town on the Mississippi, and you step across the, the railroad tracks, and, and literally in a lot of small southern towns, it really is whites on one side of the tracks and, and blacks on the other, not by law anymore, just, you know, and, you know, people living in 
you know, what I would call almost chicken coops. And at this time, I was with my friend Andrew from Australia, who was just kind of astonished at the degree of just very visible poverty, people sitting on rickety chairs in front of these rundown houses. And, you know, I've seen that before many times in the South. You see it also in Appalachia and in parts of South Texas, too. But yeah, the rural South, it's, it's, it's striking how distressed much of it is. And the part of Mexico you were in, was was it that bad too? Or? No, it's an area where they have a lot of those factories, Macaladeros, where they make car parts and other things that are then shipped to the U.S. So I would say it's one of the more prosperous parts of, you know, more prosperous in some parts of Mexico, but unfortunately also one of the very worst for drug cartels and violence. Uh, it was a, a kind of, a, yeah, one of the few times on my, really the only time on my trip where I felt a little uneasy in terms of physical safety because there were just constant shootings, beheadings, kidnappings. It was a, a, a troubled city. Yeah, And you crossed the border m- more than once uh, on that. Mm-hmm. It seems odd in talking to the people there in Eagles Pass that generally speaking, a lot of people cross over all the time. I mean, if, if Trump wants to put up his wall, yeah. which hopefully we'll get that get knocked down even before it's built this seems like an impossible situation it seems more like east and west berlin it's impossible on on many levels and and many texans acknowledge this i think they have a more nuanced understanding of this than for instance some red state areas in the upper Midwest that just, you know, haven't lived with this. One, there's just a long history of this sort of Tex-Mex, this kind of fused culture. There's a great pride in it in Texas. Physically, it makes no sense. As one border agent, you know, he said it would be like building a wall on, on sand or a castle on sand because of the terrain. Almost all of the land is private, so you're going to have to seize this land through eminent domain. It's just the practical issues. And then, as you say, yes, there's this just constant interchange. One example is dentists are much cheaper uh, in Mexico than in the U.S. So you get off the bridge and the first thing you see is this just row of, you know, places touting in kind of broken English, you know, wisdom teeth, you know, or whatever the sign would say. And people go over they, they, to see veterinarians and also just because family, almost everyone has family on both sides of the river. So it is, yeah, again, a more fluid scene than perhaps I, I imagined. Dave Eggers did a piece on a Trump rally in El Paso, and he said that what alarmed him and what he saw was how multicultural the audience was. And he was shocked by that, particularly by the number of Spanish speakers. Is this something you encountered as well? Not to that vivid a degree. And again, I was finishing up my travels before Trump was elected. But I certainly met people of, of mixed or of Hispanic heritage who supported him. The, you know, again, there, there are Tejanos, as they're sometimes called, and people who have Spanish heritage who have been in Texas for generations, you know, and feel very Texan and have really um, uh, shared political views to their neighbors, a shared music, diet, you name it. And also, I, I think the issue of abortion, many of these folks were also staunch Catholics, and that comes into it. So I'm not surprised to hear that. It's complicated. Again, no population within the South or any part of the country is you know, some sort of political monolith. In looking at the entire trip, 
I mean, obviously, there were little surprises, particularly in Louisiana. But overall, was there any just big surprise that you went, you know, this is never mentioned, this is never covered? You know, it's it's hard for me to generalize in that way. There were certainly big issues. One thing I think that is, well, it's known you feel it so much more palpably when you're in the South. And this was one area where I, th- I think I saw an attraction to Trump that wasn't being talked about enough. Uh, the percentage of people who have served in the military compared to, say, here in Berkeley or where I live in Massachusetts, where, sure, I know people who have served in the military, but they're not, the, you know, a, a, you know, a large number. And particularly in rural and, south, uh, you know, small town south, just the number of people who have served and also suffered. And I sensed a deep weariness with our foreign entanglements. And as you may recall, Trump, other than Rand Paul, was the only one to sort of dissent from Republican hawkish orthodoxy. And I think that had more appeal than maybe people realized to a a broad population of people who had just, yeah, enough's enough. That would be um, one thing. I think the the rural-urban divide. You know, I'm talking about the South as distinct from the rest of the country, but in many ways, the more significant divide everywhere in this country is really between urban and rural, coast and interior, well-educated and professional, and, and those who are not. You know, I saw that very starkly. I mean, we were talking a moment ago about the poverty you see in not only in rural areas, you also see it in urban areas, but the stark difference between that and, say, the vibrancy of cities like Houston, or Nashville or Austin and San Antonio. I mean, the, the growth is also meteoric. So, yeah, these contrasts, I think, was, you know, what constantly struck me. Guns. Everybody had guns. And again, this is by no means confined to the South. A rural America, you know, has a lot of guns. And I would say, yeah, Texas in particular. Uh, the first woman from Texas that I met told me something, you know, as a sort of travel tip. She says, you know, if you meet a lady and she talks about her little sister, she's not talking about her younger sibling. She's talking about the pistol in her purse. And <laughs> it's referred to as little sister. And, you know, there are people there. Uh, there's a really a whole movement in Texas for I think they call it constitutional carry, which is just literally no regulation of any kind on where you can take a gun, who can own a gun. So, yes, I would say Texas is uh, uh, among a certain population is uh, the most extreme in that regard. And another area where we're very divided in this country, very hard to find middle ground on that issue. Uh, One of the things that people won't know in this discussion is how funny Spying on the South actually is as a book, particularly a ride on an ass. <laughs> <laughs> Technically a mule, but yes. And a mule is an ass meets a, a mare. donkey, yes. <laughs> meets a, a dun- mare. Half donkey, half horse. And they're remarkable creatures for their endurance and intelligence, but they're also, uh, yes, rather ornery and mulish, as I discovered on this kind of tragic comic episode <laughs> where I was trying to, um, again, mimic Olmsted who rides across Texas and had a mule with him. And I found this muleteer who was willing to uh, uh, take me on an expedition. But yes, it went uh, rather badly. We did not see eye to eye, me and the mule, or nor did I with my guide who was uh, kind of sadistic 
uh, to the point where I had to change his name. Did you talk to him? About Not there, no, I was very clear during the trip. I'm taking notes. I'm writing a book here. But when it came time to publish, I thought I don't want to do gratuitous insult to this uh, this man's livelihood, really. I've never done that before as a writer, really. But it's not a flattering portrait either of him or me <laughs> or the mule. We were a pretty sad trio stuck out there in the, you know, in the wilds of uh, the hill country of Texas. Well, you did have a friend Josh there along for the ride. Except he bails on me because he's so unhappy. Well, he was he's a big guy. He's yes. fat, right? Yes. Big, strong guy. And I brought him along partly as a buffer between myself and this very difficult guide. And also he was a local guy and, you know, uh, an experienced rider. But he got so fed up with our guide, he said, basically, I've got to, I've got to get out of here. I'm going to, you know, strangle him. So he just sort of abandoned me and left me alone with this guy and this ornery mule, which, as you pointed out, ultimately lands me in the emergency room. So miserable adventure, but I hope uh, makes for some fun in the book. <laughs> well, it's sort of necessary because a lot of the trip is just traveling one person to another mm -hmm. and finding things mm -hmm. out about the cultures, mm -hmm. which again, for me, my mm -hmm. biggest surprise is the regionalism, mm -hmm. is these small areas where people have different food that you won't find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. Particularly the, the German place. It's one reason I love the South. I find it very refreshing. I, I'm often depressed by the, the sameness of so much of our physical landscape, but even our cultural landscape. You know, we don't have that kind of distinct sort of regionalism in a lot of the country in the way that it once existed. So I, I think it's wonderful that you can still discover these pockets. And again, not only in the South, but perhaps more often there. Um, you've been in Europe. I've been in Europe. I've been in Asia too. Mm -hmm. There are people who say that Americans, by and large, are less friendly than other people. Is that true? No. I don't know who, who told you that. I've lived, worked, I've been to over 50 countries. I was a foreign correspondent. And one of the most interesting things about living and working abroad for you know many years as I did is you come to see your own country very differently. And we are genuinely more friendly and open I think, than, yeah, just about anyone in the world. I mean, yes, I, I find that a, a strange statement, whoever made it. And I would say Southerners are especially so. They're kind of super Americans in that regard. So I think that's one of our better attributes. I do think perhaps people become more suspicious of each other, you know, on a security level. But that being said, I'm saying that as a white guy, it is easier for me than I, I think it would be for, for many people. But generally speaking, yes, I think we're, we are a friendly lot. We haven't talked much about Olmsted in this. Mm -hmm. And there's an interview with Mitch Jezerich that people can find at kpfa.org that talks more about that part of the trip. But the very end of the book, you go into Olmsted's life and you talk about the value of a place like Central Park. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's the last stop mm -hmm. on your trip. Yep. And I've been there many times. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Well, I you know, lived in New York. I've been there many times. And I thought you know, I should revisit now that I understand Olmsted's development and philosophy. I'd never looked at the experience that or any other park uh, in that way. And I should say, while we're here, you know, he, he did the original plan for Berkeley. Not much of it was followed. But his mark is everywhere. Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland, uh, Yosemite itself, he was critical in preserving. So this man really helped create or preserve 
the urban and the suburban world and others parts of it that we still inhabit. Uh, but Central Park is certainly his most famous. And I think it's hard for us to understand today how radical that was uh, at that time when there were no urban parks to set aside that much space to not be developed. And then to have this man with Calvert Fox as his partner design this gem that has endured ever since. All your research reading his material mm-hmm. from the 1850s, years mm-hmm. before Central Park was anybody's idea, and you know, getting away from the idea of foreshadowing the future, mm-hmm. were there hints mm-hmm. in his writings mm-hmm. that something like Central Park would exist or could exist? Yes. In fact, it was already, it didn't exist as a park yet, but the land had already been set aside. And so there was this notion of something's going to happen here at Central Park. So that wasn't new, but it's the, the vision that he brings to it that he develops, and I talk about it a lot in the book, and his southern travels, that this isn't just a a green space, you know, it's a democratic gathering space. It's a rebuke to the South, uh, which thinks that, uh, you know, the masses are incapable of governing themselves and behaving in an appropriate way with each other and with their social betters. So it's a very uh, political act as well as a, an act of a mere landscape design. I think that's what's freshest about his approach as well as his aesthetics. These are highly engineered places. It's a lot of thought behind every <laughs> aspect you know, uh, of their design. There's a lot of talk today about tribalism and how it's growing in the world as people seem to be finding their own niches. And I think a lot of that has to do with the internet. But it seems in reading Spying on the South that Olmsted was aware of that, which is Central Mm -hmm. Park, and he was aware of it on his trip, and that there are ways to overcome it. And if we're going to survive as a nation, that's what we have to do, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah, he hated tribes. He hated sectarianism. It's one reason he was really kind of anti-religious, which was unusual for his day. He thought all it did was create these divisions between people. And his whole mission was really bringing down barriers in every sense, physically, uh, socially. I think what's happening now, I mean, you know, it gets talked about and it's, uh, I think it'll be interesting 20 years from now to see historians look at a, at a longer arc because this isn't only happening in America, it's happening around the world. This, uh, what appears to be a, a reaction against the sort of globalism uh, in both economic and political and uh, um, immigration terms that, that we've seen in, you know, for several decades. And there seems to be this, this counter current now of uh, nationalism, tribalism. And, you know, I think there are psychological dimensions to that, that people people need smaller units or need to feel they belong to, to smaller units. I, I think there are much broader forces at work simply than a Trump or, you know, our shouting media or our social media. All these things maybe amplify and exaggerate and enable this tribalism. But I think it's a large and complicated issue. Tony Horowitz, now that you've written Spying on the South, have you begun work on another book? I have not. I finished it only really, you know, the editing and all the the final work only a, a few months ago. So I didn't have the usual, you know, you usually have about a nine month lag and, uh, you know, you start noodling on the next thing. And I really haven't uh, had that uh, brain space yet, but 
open to suggestions. So who knows, maybe I'll stumble on a book uh, here in Berkeley that will set me off as uh, uh, Olmsted's Cotton Kingdom did. If someone wanted to read one book by Olmsted, which would it be? I would say uh, A Journey Through Texas, which is a little misleading because he has to get to Texas first, but it's it's essentially a piece of what becomes the Cotton Kingdom, and it's the liveliest read. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.